You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here with you. I was in Ohio all week, celebrated Christmas with my side of the family, and we're back today. And it's always weird if you, when you got married, you remember this, for those of you who are married, I know some, everybody here is, uh, when you had to figure out whose family you were gonna go to for Christmas, right? And then it dawns you at some point, especially around the time you have kids, like, are we gonna start creating our own memories? Like, how are we gonna do Christmas, and what does that look like, and where do we do our own thing and their thing? And it becomes this interesting thing. So, quick question, just kind of set us up for today. Do you have any strong memories from your childhood especially around the time of Christmas? Do you have any? Do you have like a favorite one? Do you have like a worst one? Go ahead and tell somebody sitting next to you, hi, my name is so-and-so. Don't say so-and-so. Tell them your real name. There's always gonna be one sarcastic person in the room. But go ahead and tell somebody sitting next to you your favorite Christmas memory and make it quick. Ready, go. If you see somebody sitting by themselves, go to them. Nobody came to you. Nobody came to you. All right, make sure the other person gets to talk. If you're like me, you probably have more than you have time to tell, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know. How do I pick my favorite? We always went to grandma's house. We always blah, 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 blah. Some of my favorite childhood memories, my mom was a nurse, and she worked at a hospital, and so she was almost always scheduled for Christmas morning. So we would wake up at like five or six in the morning, no joke, we would tear through the presents. Then we, my mama would make breakfast and we would sit down and eat breakfast and say goodbye to my mom. And most years, most years, not every year, but most years, the hospital would call around like 8 a.m. and say, you know, we're not really busy. We have enough help. Stay home with your family. What do you do when you're eight years old? You've opened all of your presents. You've already eaten breakfast and it's Christmas morning. It's like, where's round two, guys? Come on, is there another round coming up? But I remember those. I mean, they, they, as a kid, I didn't know that that wasn't normal. I just thought that's what everybody did. I thought everybody woke up early. One of my favorite childhood memories from around Christmas time, my parents would always let us open a present on Christmas Eve. Now, they would almost always pick the present, so I didn't pick like the big, the best one, you know, and it's over with, and there's nothing to look forward to. But still, there was always this anticipation of, ooh, I get to open something and get all excited about what was gonna happen the next day. I just remember some of these things. And now, as I shared with you last week, my father-in-law uh, passed away just a couple weeks ago, and uh, we had this tradition when I married my wife, they would, every year they'd gather together, and they would read the Christmas story, and they would sing a few Christmas songs, and we'd say a little prayer, and then we'd get into our presents, and the purpose of that was to remind ourselves Christmas isn't about presents, and it's not about stockings, it's not about trees, it's about Jesus, and it's about the Son of God coming to earth, and so that was their little way of just reminding themselves that this is what we do, and now that granddaddy's gone, and he was like the leader of the pack, like I have myself asking these questions like, what am I gonna do now? Which leads me to a new question for you. If you don't have any traditions at Christmas time or at all in your life, what memories are you creating for yourself and for those closest to you? Is there anything you're intentionally doing to just plant into your heart or in the heart of others something good about life? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but life 
can be hard enough on its own. It's good to have good memories of life. Now let me give you a little, little education here, a little wisdom for you. There are two things in life that you're gonna remember. You ready? Number one, you're gonna remember anything that's repeated over and over and over again. Now, your childhood memory you just shared with somebody else in the room, my guess is there are things you remember from your childhood, and they may be really good memories, they may be bad memories, but they may be good memories, but you don't remember a specific moment, you just remember that it happened. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like you don't remember exactly a specific meal. You just remembered that most nights of the week you sat down as a family and you ate together. You may not remember uh, whatever vacation specifically, but you just remember you guys used to go on vacation all the time, whatever it is. You may remember that your brother or sister squeezed the toothpaste from the middle of the tube and you thought they were Satan and you weren't sure what was wrong with them. You don't remember a specific moment that they did it, you just remember that it happened a lot in your childhood. Those kinds of things plant in our heads. And those kinds of things are where we get the idea of traditions from. You know what I'm talking about? Traditions. And this time of the year, we got them. The stockings have to go in a certain place, right? The tree has to look a certain way. It has to sit in front of that window. We have to sing these songs or do these rituals or go through these, jump through these hoops. But then the other kind of things we remember are not the consistent things, but the random things that get attached to a very strong or powerful emotion. Here's what I mean by that. So you get scared. You know what I'm talking about? Like something terrifying happens. Oh no, I don't know how we're gonna pay our bill. Or that time somebody came around the corner uh, with a mask on and just scared the snot out of you. Or the first time you saw mommy kissing Santa Claus and it freaked you out. Like something that just tragically sits in your mind. Or it could be good sits in your mind. You may remember generically a lot of Christmases of opening presents you received on Christmas morning, but there may be one specific present you remember, and there's usually a reason you remember it. Something happened around that present that embedded that thought in your head. And here's what memory experts, neuroscientists teach us, is that we don't tend to have a video of that moment. We tend to have a snapshot, and we can look at it, and we can kind of remember the scene and where people are sitting and certain sights and smells, but it's implanted in our mind forever. And you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world does any of this have to do with God or Jesus or the Christmas story? It has everything to do with it. Because here's what I wonder. What did Mary remember about the Christmas story? I mean, there were so many things going on. If you've sang any Christmas songs this year, just curious for my own benefit, how many of you have been listening to Christmas music? God bless you. How many of you can't wait for Christmas music to be over? God bless you. How many of you are year-rounders? We'll leave that there. So anyway. <laughs> we sing these songs and we pick up these little nuggets and these little details to the point where we could probably retell the Christmas story to some extent. But what we don't even realize is how much Christian tradition has seeped into our memory of the events, and they may or may not even be accurate depictions. For instance, and if you're following along the outline, I'm gonna jump ahead just a little bit and we'll go backwards. For instance, how about the song we just sang? Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. 
I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my side till morning is nigh. Okay, so first of all, if you've ever had a little baby and the baby wakes, was the baby not crying? Anybody? Some of you are like, yes, because I had the most perfect baby in the world. I know you probably interviewed my mom at some point, but in reality, when babies wake, they tend to want something. And they tend to cry to get it, especially at a young age. Now, is that always true? No, of course. Babies sit pleasantly and smile and coo and make all those cute noises. But they're still making cute noises. So did Mary really tell us that Jesus never made a noise? So what in the world? Why have we been singing this for years? I don't imagine that Jesus was any different than any other baby. There's nothing sinful about crying when you have a need and you're a baby. And if you soil yourself, there's nothing sinful about that. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, but he was still lying in a manger. If there was hay in that manger, a manger was a feeding trough for animals. If there was hay in that manger, I can't imagine it was the most comfortable thing to be poked with if you were a baby. I can only imagine that crying was a periodic part of his story. But it brings up all these great traditions that we have and we wonder about things that we've inserted into our minds about what happened in that moment. But the real question is, what really happened in that moment? And to me, the better question, the better question is, how do we know that what happened in that moment actually happened in that moment? Memory is a funny thing, isn't it? Memory is funny because if you look back to your childhood, there's things you remember, but if you gather together with your brothers and your sisters and you start to tell stories, don't you find sometimes your memory of things is a little bit different than other people's memory of things? So how can we know with certainty that the story that we've heard, the story that we've sung, and the story that we've read is trustworthy? How do we know that that story isn't like William Wallace or the Knights of the Round Table, and there's a little bit of truth mixed with a whole lot of legend, and there's just nothing we can know with absolute certainty? Did the baby really wake and not cry? Well, one thing we can know for sure is that Luke one guy who wrote one of the books of the Gospels, there's four of them, he went out of his way to research as many details as he could track down. In fact, from his own mouth, he said this. Take a look at me in Luke chapter one, verse one, the very first verse, first verse of his book. He says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, first of all, in biblical Christian terms, the phrase, the word, is a phrase that is deep and steeped in biblical context. And basically what it means is the, the teachings of God. That's an important concept. Now, when John uses it, John specifically points to Jesus as the word because he's the revelation of God. But either way, you could say they're saying the same thing in that the word being pointing to the message from God that God wants us delivered from himself to us through the hands, through the mouths of real people. 
God would do this in the Old Testament through prophets. He would speak to a prophet, then the prophet would go speak on behalf of God. And usually God would verify that prophet. He would uh, prove that that prophet was from him because if what that prophet said came true, then they were speaking on God's behalf. And if what that prophet said was false, then that was a false prophet. And if a prophet was wrong even once, he could not claim to speak for God because God can never be wrong. In other words, what Luke is trying to say to you is, I've done a whole bunch of research about the words from God, about what really happened and why it's important for you. He goes on and he says this, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke is writing the book of Luke and actually the book of Acts. If you pick up the book of Acts, he begins the same way. Hey, here's part two of my book I'm writing for you. Theophilus is a gentleman that Luke is writing to. It's possible Theophilus is a guy with some money and some resources and he's paying Luke to write these things down and record them. But this is critical for us. We're not talking about legends like William Wallace. Go watch the movie Braveheart. Maybe don't go watch, actually don't. Don't go watch the movie Braveheart, but... If you were to happen to stumble upon it, like Shawshank Redemption, or like a rerun on TV, and you kept watching it, and then you were to go do some research on history, you would find that there is a whole bunch of legend, and probably some of it's true. And that's the way we tend to view the Bible in today's context. Yeah, it's a good story. By and large, it's probably true or trustworthy, but I'm not sure what can or can't be trusted. There's probably lots of stuff that's been inserted. You know that evil Catholic church. I hear this one all the time. I'm not saying I agree with it. They kept all that stuff locked down in a vault. They probably modified it and changed it over the years to say what they wanted it to say. We can't trust any of it. So let's just take the parts we like and throw away the parts we don't like. And if we were to do that, by the way, Thomas Jefferson actually did this. He went through the Bible and cut out all the parts he didn't like. You're like, why Thomas Jefferson? Yes. What we could end up doing with God is we could recreate God in our own image. We could make God out to be who we want him to be instead of who he really is. Because see, when we actually get into the story, what we find is Mary's willing to throw in all the details. So is Peter, Paul, John. They're all willing to put in the details, the ones that make them look great and the ones that make them look foolish. The ones that make God look like he's amazingly powerful, this great miracle, and the ones that seem confusing as well. See, if I were going to create God and I were going to tell a story about God and I were going to create a religion about God, I would take out the parts that don't make God absolutely awesome in all ways. I would remove anything that had to do with my own personal grasping, grappling, and struggling. I would remove anything that doesn't make God look absolutely perfect but the New Testament's full of them. I would make our heroes, I would never make Peter say the silly things that Peter says sometimes. When we look at him and we laugh and we read, we go, he's so human, I can relate with him. But all of those are in there. And they're in there for a reason. It's one of the things that gives validity to these texts. And Luke is letting you know, I've gone out of my way. I've talked to all of these people. I've written them down. There have been multiple historians since Luke wrote his book that walked Luke's path to find out, does Luke have any idea what he's talking about? 
One gentleman named Sir Walter Rams, you can go look it up. He actually traveled through Luke's book, through the Middle East, and he came to the conclusion this guy was an A-plus scholar because everything he said was accurate. There are even times that we thought Luke has been wrong in his recordings, and then some new piece of archaeology pops up, and it confirms that Luke was right all along. So there's still questions. We don't know exactly how to fit all these pieces together. And there are moments where what we know about history seems to contradict sometimes what Luke writes. All I know is every time we get more information, Luke keeps getting exonified. He keeps getting uh, off the hook for what he wrote. So I, for me personally, I just wanted to give you a little bit of confidence. I believe what Luke wrote. He goes on and he tells us this in Luke chapter two. We're gonna jump ahead of the story and then come backwards. Look at verse 19. He says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Why is that important? It's Luke's little way in chapter two of telling Theophilus, hey, remember chapter one when I told you I did my homework and I talked to all these people, I researched it, I did my job, I want you to know I talked specifically to Mary. This isn't legend, this isn't hearsay, this isn't just a cute little story that was made up, this is the real deal and you can trust it. How do I know? I talked to Mary, and she had all these things stored up in her heart. Why these things, Mary? Maybe we should read them first and actually see what the story says. Take a look with me. Luke chapter two, verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And one night, late into the evening, the baby woke and did not cry. It's a missing verse. It's actually not in the story anywhere. And I actually hate it, which is why I'm making a big deal about it. The reason that I hate it is because it makes Jesus something other than human. And the power of this story is that God became human. I've been meeting with a gentleman, and, and I don't know if he's here, so I'm gonna ask for his grace. I'm not gonna give any details that anybody but he and I will know who I'm talking about. But I've been meeting with him because he has lots of questions about his faith. He married a lady who's a believer and he has experience with the church, but he's got a traumatic childhood and he's got a lot of questions. He's trying to put the pieces together. He's trying to figure it out. And we've just been meeting and talking through things and, and kind of working through some things. And these are the kinds of questions that we talk about. How can we know? How can we know? How can we know? 
And I find it extremely relevant because part of what I am trying to say to him and part of what I want to say to you is part of the reason we can know is because real people saw it, real people experienced it, and they told you about it. So not only did Mary and Joseph say this, but I tell you what, if Mary and Joseph wanted to make up a religion, if Mary and Joseph wanted to clear Mary's name, Remember, she's from a small town called Nazareth in the area of Galilee, and even the disciples at one point said, can anything good come from there? I mean, we were talking about a small, small, podunk, nowhere town, and every time I tell this story, I want to name somewhere in Indiana that I won't because I'll make somebody mad because you're from there. There are small towns, and you know those kind of small towns. I mean, if you wanted to be able to send your wife home and clear her name, I mean, you got this pregnant, unmarried, young mother, like, she's a virgin, and everybody thinks you're nuts. Let's clear her name. She's a virgin pregnant with the son of God. Well, that goes over better. (laughs) But what if shepherds show up and they say, you're never gonna believe this, guys. We were all on the hillside and some angels showed up and started telling us there'd be a baby and he'd be lying in a manger, which we are so used to hearing it, that's second nature. You gotta put it, he'd be lying in an animal trough wrapped in clothing, wrapped tightly in cloth, and we went and we found him. And Luke is saying, I talked to all of these people, and they all tell the same story. Now, Mary and Joseph have some details that shepherds don't have, but he's saying, I talked to all of them, all of them. When we're talking about this story, we're talking about eyewitness accounts. Do you get that? We're not just talking about Is it legal for a nativity scene to be put up at a local courthouse? We're not talking about should Macy's write Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays on the wall. We're talking about a story that actually took place somewhere in time. And to my friend that I've been meeting with and to all of you, I just want to say the reason it's important is because something happened in history. And you can believe it or you can not believe it. You can take it or you can leave it. But you have to at least explain it. You have to at least acknowledge the fact that before 2,000 years ago, there was nothing significant happening in ancient Israel. And then since this moment occurred, all of history has been impacted by it to the point today where some estimate there are roughly 2 billion Christians in the world today. That a ragtag group made up of taxpayers, or tax collectors, I should say, and fishermen gathered together and start following this guy around, and at one moment they are so afraid for their lives that they hide constantly so they could never be seen, and in the next moment they live so radically that you and I tell their story today. What changed in them? Something happened. And whether you believe the young virgin new mother or not, She says, an angel came to me, said I would become pregnant. An angel came to me, said that I was highly favored by God. An angel came to me and said, the one going to be born inside you, he's going to be a light to the world. So whether anybody believes me or not, it's my job to take care of it. 
Look at verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone up into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem, see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Luke is letting you know I've talked to all these people. They are all saying what I'm telling you they said. Do you believe him? I have a million questions for Mary. How about you? I mean, whoever it was you talked to this morning, let's just say you met somebody you don't know. I mean, if you're sitting there talking to your spouse, you're talking to your children, you've probably heard their story so many times, you could tell it for them and probably tell it better. But if you're talking to somebody you didn't know, don't you have a million questions? I've got questions for Mary. Mary, what was Jesus really like? Did he have a favorite outfit? Did he have a favorite song? Was Jesus helpful around the house? Were you ever tempted to take advantage of Jesus? Like, I mean, seriously, it, since Jesus had no sin, so he had to obey his mama. Were you ever tempted to just be like, hey, Jesus, you got dinner tonight. You know, I know that one was on me. And you need to have dinner before Joseph gets home. So, and it's gonna be our little secret. You're not gonna tell him anything. Some of you are like, I'd never thought of that. Like, did Jesus ever hide a soiled diaper? I've heard of kids who did these things. Don't ask my mom. Um, did Jesus eat his vegetables? Did he argue about them? I mean, I know these things are silly, but for some reason, Mary remembered these specific details. And if what we understand about memory is correct, then there are certain reasons why she remembered these details. There's a gap in the story. We only get a couple more details. It's one, two, skip a few, he's 12. One, two, skip a few, he's 30, and he's starting his ministry. And there's a lot that happens between being born and 30. I don't know if you know that or not. So why don't we have all those other details? And the short answer is, because Mary wanted to keep the story focused on God. The story of Jesus is about what God is doing in your life and in mine. It's about what God is ushering into the world, a new kingdom. And as evangelicals, we spend way too much time talking about the last moment the moment where we die and we leave this life and we go be with God in heaven forever. Of course we will. But Jesus is bringing a kingdom. And it's not a kingdom that begins out there. We're already 2,000 years after that kingdom began. It's a kingdom that begins right here and right now in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our homes, in our communities, in our jobs, in our schools. And how we live our lives is ushering that kingdom of heaven into earth in such a way that heaven isn't there. Heaven is here in us through this little baby. Sweet little 10-pound baby, Jesus, lying in a manger. That's a big baby. It's first century Jewish baby. He's probably a lot smaller than that. I have no idea what Jesus weighed. I should back up. What I know is Mary doesn't want you or I to forget that it's really all about him. Take a look with me for a moment. Luke chapter two, verse 21. On the eighth day, 
When it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Why is that little detail stuck in there? Kind of in the middle of nowhere. Baby's born, wrapped in cloth, stuck in a manger, shepherds show up. By the way, on the eighth day, he was circumcised, named Jesus. It's really important, and if I had an hour, I could go into the details, so I'm gonna give a big, broad stroke and then ask if you're kind of new at this thing called faith, ask some questions. Go to our Connect Hub, say, I've got some questions. Man, we're gonna start a podcast here in the next couple weeks. We'd love to, to address some of those questions that you have and just help you kind of navigate through those. But in this particular issue, the reason it's important that on the eighth day he was circumcised is because circumcision was commanded by the Old Testament law. And in order for Jesus to fulfill the law, in order to be our savior, he had to do everything the law required and demanded of him. So on the eighth day, he was a good law-abiding Hebrew little boy. That's essentially what it's telling you. It's laying the groundwork already for him to be the perfect savior. Because the reason that you and I need a savior is because we, even though we were born as children, innocent enough, even though that was our story, we were born into a world of sin. And we've fallen and we've stumbled and we've lost our way, but not this one. This Jesus who was named by the angel before he was conceived, that name is so important. The name Jesus in Hebrew is the name Yeshua. And if you look at Yeshua and you look at Yehoshua in Hebrew, they are basically identical. And you may go, I don't even know why that's relevant, Pastor. Because Yehoshua is Joshua. And if you know biblical history, Joshua is the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. This was an, a biblical, angelic, heavenly, God-inspired way of saying, this Joshua, this Yeshua, this Jesus, he will be your real savior, and he will lead you not into a physical promised land Will there be lots of presents and gifts and trees and lights. No, he's going to lead you into a heavenly promised land whereby you will come into the presence of God, the favor of God, the grace of God, that's what grace is. The favor of God that he is with you and he is for you always, and we find it even in the name given the baby. He is your savior. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. It literally means Yahweh saves. I believe the story. I don't know about you, but it does bring up one last great question. God taking on flesh and dwelling among us is intense enough, but why, God? Why go to Nazareth? Well, the prophecies told us that he would in the Old Testament. This text I just read you is dripping with prophecy. I'm already thinking, like, maybe next Christmas we just go through some of the prophetic texts in Christmas. I mean, 500, 600, 700 years before Jesus shows up, this one chapter alone fulfills three different texts about the Messiah, hundreds of years before he gets there. And it's powerful when you see those. But God, you chose Nazareth. Why? Why did you choose Nazareth? Why is that detail in there and yet you were born in Bethlehem? 
Well, the Bethlehem one is easy because as Luke told us, he's born in the city of David. And this is important because God told us David was always going to be a king after his own heart that will point us to a better king because no matter how great David was, and if you read his story, he was great. He was a broken man who had lots of sin and lots of failure in his life that hurt other people. But the real David, the true king, when he comes, he'll sit on David's throne forever, but he won't be like that David. He'll be even better. So that one is easy, but why Nazareth? Why Galilee? Why that area? Why the small town? I think Philip Yancey nails it. In his book that Jesus I had never knew, Philip Yancey says this. It seems that God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for Jesus' entrance as if to avoid any charge of favoritism. I am impressed that when the Son of God became a human being, he played by the rules, harsh rules. Small towns do not treat kindly to young boys who grow up with questionable paternity. And see, therein lies the beauty of the way Mary remembers the story. Not only does she remember the hand of God Angels coming and speaking. Not only does she remember the crazy things like shepherds showing up and wise men coming and bringing gifts. Not only does she remember all those things, but they're enough to encourage her heart. If you know the story, they're running for their lives. Herod has put out a decree to kill the young boys. They are literally fighting to survive. Oh, no surprise that they would remember that. But in the midst of the strife, in the midst of the mocking, in the midst of the rumors, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the pain, Mary's able to remember that God is with her. And her baby's name would serve as a constant reminder. See, strong memories of good have the power to bring hope. What I mean by that is this. No matter what is happening in your life, when you have hope that this baby is who we are told that he is, then you know, you know that God is with you and God is for you and you can look back in your life and celebrate God's goodness in the here and now and that will give you hope for whatever is coming next. So what memories are you creating? One way that my family and I, that we're creating memories especially this time of the year, as we're just telling the stories of God. What God's doing right here and right now. What God is up to in our lives. And God keeps showing off his goodness and his faithfulness to us. Just like he did 2,000 years ago on Christmas morning. I love the way that the song ends. Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay. Close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and take us to heaven to live with thee there. Maybe today what you need more than anything is just simply to remember that this little baby is in fact Yahweh saves. And maybe today what you need is the hope that Yahweh saves. Maybe what you need today is to know him as your savior. What we're gonna do as we uh, conclude our services today is we're gonna take communion. 
We're gonna bring God our offerings. We're just gonna celebrate the fact that he still saves even today. I'm gonna ask that you take some time this morning as you take the bread and you take the juice, and I want you to do what I've been practicing with my kids. You ready? I know everybody's stirring and get ready to go. Here's what I want you to do. Before you take the bread, and then again before you take the juice, I want you to say thank you to God for something specifically that he has done or is doing in your life right now. What that's gonna force you to do is to think about something good or great you see God doing instead of maybe something hard or painful or difficult going on in your life. God, thank you for whatever it is. And you know what you'll end up doing? You'll end up creating a memory for yourself this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. It's because of him that we enter into the promised land of a life with you. God, my, my house is full of presents. Some we've already opened for my parents. Some we're gonna open this week with the rest of the family. God, it's not about presents. If the house burns down and we lose everything tomorrow, we'll still have you. And you gave us that gift 2,000 years ago and you won't take it away from us. So God, we thank you. We thank you for life. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the good that you are doing in us and around us right now. God, open our hearts and our eyes to see all the ways that you were blessing and providing, to see all the ways that you have already blessed and provided through the name of Jesus. And God, may our hope be anchored solidly in you. Lord, I pray right now for any man, woman, or child who came here today needing hope. God, may they know it in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray.